this is a timeless issue. And it's also a topic that's, that's oftentimes misunderstood, um, which, giving my personal experience of, of a couple of ways that, that I was experiencing it, it being misunderstood here. In, in, in fact, these verses that we'll go through uh, contain a key to sanctification and joy in the, in the Christian life. And you put all that together, that's something that I can surely be excited about. Galatians 5, 13 through 16, addresses justification by faith, and it shows the foundation, this positional freedom that we have in God's Son. It shows the foundation of our pursuit of sanctification. I mean, you might even think of what we covered the, 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 this morning, how... motivation to go do these things. And he almost does the same thing here. He talks about the positional, uh, the position that, you, that you're in now. You are free in God's Son. It's a, it's a theological position that, that he has you in. And then from that place, he, he moves on and talks about how you exercise that freedom. And then he, he talks about a spiritual person, gives you, shows you what it looks like when you're not operating like that. Works of the flesh shows you what is an example. How do I know whether I'm, I'm walking in, in this freedom, Christian, Christian liberty? How do I know if the Spirit's operating in my life? Uh, well, the fruit of the Spirit's there. You can, you can have an x-ray. And then he gets really practical in chapter 6, showing you okay, tangibly, what, what does this look like? Well, you're, um, you're restoring one another. Galatians 6, 1 and, and 2. You who are spiritual... You're in this position for freedom and operating rightly in that, keeping in step with the Spirit, bearing the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit's being born in, in, in your life. Then you'll restore other people who have fallen in the, in the church. You'll consider yourself, lest you also be tempted. Um, you'll bear your own load. Uh, you'll bear one another's burdens. You'll also bear your own load. Uh, you won't be a spiritual burden to, to the church. You'll come when you need help, when you have, when you have fallen, but, but the rest of the time, you, you won't be on the church's welfare role uh, spiritually. You won't be a high-maintenance believer. You may be that way. We are all that way whenever, at certain times and whenever we first come to Christ, but you won't stay there. An immature believer uh, is, is someone who takes a lot of resources and so he says, bear your own load. This is what it looks like. You're bearing your own load. You're maturing. Um, and then he talks about giving. You'll give where you're, you're taught. That's the whole passage about reaping what you, you sow. And then he ends the whole thing about, in uh, Galatians 6.10, about doing good. You'll be a person, uses their life, uses their gifts, uses their resources to, to, to do good to everyone especially the brethren, especially the household of faith. Um, and so it is a very practical passage. Um, it deals with the law. Uh, what, what is law? What is, what is Christian law? Are Christians under the Mosaic law? Um, if not, what do we do with the Ten Commandments? Are they still operative? Are they still, are they still good? It, the passage deals with Christian love. What does it mean to, to have Christian love? I mean, it covers what it means to be free in Christ. It reveals what that looks like. And we'll see it, 
all of it's directly connected to your life and your responsibility and happiness in a local church. Um, I think we're naturally, I think this comes natural from the fall. We are naturally bent. We're born um, self-oriented. We are the center of the universe. I mean, that, that's the sin of Satan. He wanted to rise above God. He wanted to be the, the one that everything revolved around, and that's in our hearts. Uh, and, and, and that has, comes out in the way that we do Christianity, in the way that we, we do church life. We look at church based on what it can give me, not what I can give to, to it. Um, and your responsibility and happiness in the local church is directly connected to to Christian liberty. I'm going to show you um, in, this, in this passage that a believer is called by God into freedom so that through love they may be bound in service to one another. And in doing so, you actually fulfill the true intent of the, of the law. And you do that naturally. You do that internally. You don't need an external law code that commands you to do that. It just comes from, from, your, from your transformed heart. I'll show you that Christian liberty is actually not about you or what you can do or not do, but it's actually about others. And that our liberty in Christ actually demands a committed church membership being committed to a specific group of people in contrast to freedom from commitment or freedom from responsibility or being served by a local church ministry. I mean, the true purpose of Christian freedom in, in its essence is a believer's commitment to, to, to a local church. Let me orient you to Galatians since we're going to be jumping into chapter 5. And I mean, that's just like fingernails on a chalkboard to, to me. Um, chapter 5 is the third, sec, third part of the book. I, I mean, I would assume a lot of you have read Galatians. Maybe if you haven't, if you haven't, I would encourage you to just start, start reading it over the, over the summer. Like many of Paul's writings, Galatians has a personal section, it has a doctrinal section, and then a practical section. When Paul writes, he writes about some, usually about himself a little bit, about the church. And then he goes into doctrine, which is all of this theology. And then usually somewhere in the book, he'll use the term therefore. And now you know you've transitioned into the, the practical section of the book. Okay, Doctrine, theology, now so what? This is what it means in your, in your life. Paul, Paul writes a little more of the personal part because he's defending his apostleship in, in, in Galatians. But the the theme of the, of the whole book is a defense of the gospel of justification by faith alone against law works and the Judaizer. So it's a defense of the gospel of justification by faith alone against what you might call law works. Um, and it's a charter of Christian freedom in God's Son, in, in Christ. And the final section that we'll look at, um, God provides the true definition and purpose of Christian liberty. And it does so on the basis of Paul's argument that you've actually been set free from the Mosaic Law. You've been set free from 
from Moses. And up to this point, uh, Paul has been arguing against a, a Judaistic gospel, a lot like he, he started to in, in Romans. And, and that gospel is characterized by keeping the Mosaic precepts, uh, which is no gospel at all. Remember the last time I was in Israel talking to Boaz uh, about our, our friend and brother, Minno Kalisher, which I introduced Boaz to. And, of course, Minno is a, um, he's a, he's a converted Jew. He's messianic. And um, he, Boaz was, was talking about you know, messianic uh, uh, believers. And, and, and he was saying, you know, well, well what's wrong with, with, with doing some of the things in the, in the law of Moses. What's wrong with keeping the Sabbath? What's wrong with doing all these things as long as you believe in, you know, in, in the Messiah as well? And I was navigating these waters uh, um, uh, lightly because you and I would say, well, there's, you know, in one sense, there's, there's, there's nothing wrong. I mean, Romans 14 talks about, you know, you keep a day as somebody else keeps a day. But for somebody like Boaz, who is still... Who, who still doesn't even get it. He's not a believer. He's still steeped in, in the Mosaic Covenant. He's probably thinking that I'll do that along with Jesus. I'll just kind of add Jesus to my Jewishness, and then that's what's going to, you know, to, to get me to Christ. And that was coming out in the New Testament as well. Demanding circumcision, demanding keeping the Sabbath. Yes, it's Jesus, but you do all these other things too. And Paul says that's no gospel at all. You can't add anything to the work of Jesus Christ. It is faith alone. It is Christ alone. You add anything to either one of those and you have no gospel whatsoever. T- turn back to Galatians chapter, chapter 1. Let me just kind of take you through the, the flow here. I don't know if you've ever kind of done a flyover of a book. So if you have a study Bible, it's probably already broken most of this down for you. Um, so I'm going to talk about major themes in chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. So what you probably want to be looking for as you're trying to follow me is the headings in your, in your, in your study Bible, whether it's ESV or MacArthur or whatever it is. It usually has things like the greeting, mine does, only one gospel, call to apostleship, contacts in Jerusalem. That's just kind of headings over different sections of the, uh, of the text. But I just kind of want to sweep through this and bring you up to chapter 5 before we, before we start, start working. So here's the personal part. Paul works through the defense of his message and his apostleship in chapter 1 and, and chapter 2. He, he says his message hasn't changed. This is in verses 1 through, through, through 10. This is a great passage to use when Mormons come knocking at your, your door because, you know, Mormons claim that an angel appeared, Joseph Smith, and gave them the Book of Mormon, which is a different gospel. And I've used this with two Mormons that have come to my door before, verse 8. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary, different, to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? I mean, Paul's being accused of being a man-pleaser here, and he says, my message hasn't changed. I haven't changed my message. 
In fact, I'm telling you, if anyone changes the message, adds to the message of the gospel that you've heard from me, that you heard from the other apostles, then that person is a curse. Let them be anathema. Let them be damned. And Paul says that his revelation came from God, not, not man, in verse 11. He says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. I didn't get that from anybody. For I neither received it from man nor was taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And you know that revelation, how it started. Paul's going out trying to persecute believers. He's on the road to Damascus. He's knocked off his horse. And Jesus, the risen Christ, says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Um, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. Jesus associating with his own church. And then after that, you know the story, Paul's struck blind and, and a prophet comes to him and, and he's baptized. They have to convince him, you know, convince everybody, no, this guy's not, you know, secretly coming to try to lock you up. He, he really is converted. But then after that, Paul goes into Arabia and, and he, he, he doesn't go to Jerusalem and learn from anybody. He gets revelation directly from the from the Lord, and that's what he's, he's saying here. He's defending his apostleship. His, his message hasn't changed. His, changed. his revelation came directly from God, and his apostolic authority is from, from God. So after this revelation, he says, uh, three, he's explaining all this. Then three years, verse 18, later I went up to Jerusalem, and I became equated with Cephas, Peter, stayed with him 15 days. And I did not see any other of the apostle except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I'm writing to you, I, I assure you before God, I am not lying. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in the sight of the churches of Judea and Christ, but, but only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted is now preaching the faith. Which, was, which he once tried to destroy. I mean, that right there ought to make your heart sing as a believer. That's the kind of power the gospel has. The gospel could take a man who was persecuting Christ and turn him into somebody like the apostle Paul. And they were glorifying God because of me. Wow, look what Christ has done. And then after that, an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. He shows the inconsistency here of those who, who live by keeping the Mosaic precepts. And he, he's defending, defending his apostleship, but he's building up to this Judaistic gospel. I mean, I dealt with this, Paul's saying. I dealt with it from Peter. And he talks about how the inconsistency he, he, founds in, he finds in Peter's life and even rebukes Peter in the first ten verses. Verse 11 through 18, Peter, when, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Not only what he was seeing there but for, uh, in, in, in Jerusalem, but, but with Peter. For prior to coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof. That, that, that should encourage you too. I mean, here's the apostle Peter. Here is Peter who fell, was restored by Christ three times. Do you love me? Three times restored. Preached at Pentecost. Used greatly of the Lord. And he's still following the fear of man. To the point that God loves him still. To the point that God would rebuke him through, through Peter. I mean, through, through Paul. 
a new convert. I'm sure that was humbling for Peter. And that's a reminder of two things. One, you're never above falling, and God will love you because He loved you from this morning. He will love you enough to correct you and not, not throw you away. So he rebukes him, verse 11 through, through 18. And verse 18, he says, For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. And the verse that you know well, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. He's identifying with Christ now. And you say, well, Paul, did you go to heaven? No. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I'm still walking around the earth. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. I do not gut the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If the law can get you there, then God played a really cruel joke on His Son. And He put Jesus through a lot for nothing. But the law can't get you there. Christ is the only one who who can. And so now He gets into into His doctrine with with that verse. And He expounds on the necessity of justification by, by faith alone. And you know this as well. Now He turns to the Galatians. You foolish Galatians... Who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out for you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Did you come to Christ by by the law? When I came to you, did did I go through the Ten Commandments? I mean, I, I, I may have pointed out how you broke the Ten Commandments. But you were not regenerated by, by that. What you were regenerated, you were regenerated by the Spirit, by the hearing of faith. Because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. That's the power of the gospel. Your job is sharing the gospel. And the gospel has within it the power to convert people, to open their, their eyes. It's not your ability to twist their arm to argue with them, to know apologetics or anything else. Of course, you're to always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within me. Of course, you should know the Bible to be able to answer some of the questions that, that come there. But if you are able to answer all the questions perfectly, you know the Romans wrote in every verse inside and out, that is not what's going to regenerate their souls. It's going to be the simple message of Christ crucified and risen from the dead, and faith alone in Him. And that is what turns the lights on. The Spirit of God takes the sword of the Spirit, and He discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. It goes all the way down to the core of them, and then He he washes them, He regenerates them, He gives them life. John 3 uses the term born again. It's literally born from above. There's a new spiritual birth that happens, and it's a birth that comes from from above. And that's what Paul's arguing here. And he says, look at your own life. How did you get saved? It wasn't because you sat in a corner and stuck in your thumb and pulled out a plum and said, what a good boy or girl am I. He says, you got saved because I shared the unadulterated 
powerful gospel, and it changed your, your, your life. And he proves that by providing an argument of the promise given to Abraham some 430 years before the Mosaic Covenant. And that's the easiest place to go with a Jewish person uh, that's stuck in the, in, in the Mosaic Law. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, the chicken did. Um, you know that from Genesis 1. But which came first, Abraham or Moses? Well, Abraham did. And the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional promise from God to Abraham, who was a pagan from the land of Ur. He wasn't some righteous man doing good things, and God showed up to him. His father was a pagan, and he wasn't even, of course, a Jew at that point. There weren't any Jews. And yet Abraham, God came to Abraham, and Abraham believed God and followed him, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited unto him for righteousness. His belief, his faith, that what God promised, Abraham was fully persuaded. God was able to, to, to deliver. That came long before Moses. The Mosaic Law was added after the Abrahamic covenant. And the inability of the Mosaic Law to render one righteous before God is what Paul goes over here in chapter 3. The key verse in chapter 3 is 319. 319. Why the law then? It's the same thing that we're, we're, we're about to deal with in Romans, Romans 6. Why the law then? I mean, are you saying that the Mosaic law doesn't matter? I mean, why Sinai? Why the tablets? Why Deuteronomy? Why all of this? Why the law then? It was added because of transgression. It was added after Abraham. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. And that seed is the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. And here Paul shows the true purpose of the, of the Mosaic Law, which cannot save. It was added until the, the seed should come. And then chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, there's this contrast between spiritual sonship and then precept-keeping, keeping precepts in the, in the law, which is all related to a believer's position. Galatians 4, 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ from the slave, although he's an owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers. Mosaic law, guardians, managers until a date set by the Father. He uses an example that they would, they would fully understand in verse 3. And so also we, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world, these external things, these ceremonial things, these shadows that have now passed away, Paul's saying. But when the fullness of time came, God's predetermined time, God's appointed time, when Christ came, this moment in time, the fulcrum of all humanity is when Jesus Christ came. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The advent of the Creator, I mean the Creator, who spoke the world into existence, came to His creation. I mean, that is the, the, the central part of, of, of history. History from God's standpoint is linear. It has a beginning and has an end. Um, we get wrapped up around the axle and the weeds when we start talking about eternity, past. Well, does eternity have a past? Well, how do, how do we understand eternity? There was never a beginning. 
or eternity future. Does eternity have a future? Well, I mean, it just, it is. Eternity is. Well, we do that to try to explain it. But there's a beginning point and there's an end point in, in, God's, in, in God's time. History doesn't repeat itself. It's not, it's not cyclical. Human beings are common and they make common mistakes and they may repeat some of those mistakes. But from God's standpoint, there's a beginning and there is an end. Whenever he's going to roll everything up by a scroll, he's going to restore it all. There's going to be new heavens and a new earth and creation begins. And the midpoint, the tipping point, the most significant point on that timeline is the coming of Jesus Christ. And here it is. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. It, it, it says that in such matter-of-fact terms, and you've read that verse probably so many times that it doesn't stun you. God sent forth, of his, sent forth his Son, born of a woman. The Creator was born of a woman in His creation and born under the law, born under the Mosaic Covenant, born under the Mosaic Law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Not externals, it's now internals. And therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. He talks about fears for the church, these folks that would try to draw them away from that message. And then he ends chapter 4 with these two covenants. He, he argues from personal testimony and then an allegorical picture between Abraham's two, two sons. Hagar, plan B, um, and, then, and then Isaac, two sons of Abraham and, and, and Sarah. Hagar is there in the Bible for all kinds of reasons, show God's grace and his mercy, but it's also to show you that plan B is usually, any plan that's not God's plan is a bad plan, no matter who tries to convince you to do it. And Paul says, in Christ, we are children of the free woman, not children of the, the bond woman. And then he starts chapter 5, verse 1, and he makes an appeal now to stand in all of this freedom that he just got done talking about. Look at Galatians 5, verse, verse 1, and now we've done the flyover, and here we are. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. With all of that context, all of that contrast between the Judaizers, the Mosaic law, going back to that, the shadow, the slavery before you were made a son. He makes an appeal to stand in this freedom. And this is the springboard verse. Therefore, keep standing firm. I've told you that, that you're in this position. Keep standing in that position. And Paul's argued that Christ, in Christ we're free from the law. He's argued the necessity of, of faith for justification, the inability of the law and our position of sonship. And now in verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, stand in that position. 
operate from this position. This is your forward operating base in, in the Christian life. This verse is, is vital to, to verse 13, which defines Christian freedom. It defines it, describes its basic nature, because this verse introduces the, the, the section. And then verse 2 through 12, it's, an, it's another appeal. He says, stand firm. And then, then, then he, he, he makes an appeal that, 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 that's here. Verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. And you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you've fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. We're looking for a righteousness outside of ourselves, not produced from within us, for through the law. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith, working through love. Here's the appeal. You were running well. Who hindered you? from obeying the truth. This persuasion did not come from Him who calls you. It doesn't come from God who saved you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you. I have confidence in the Lord that you will adopt no other view. But the one who's disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I will, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, but I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who, were, who, who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. And that is a very graphic word. Um, let's just say that's, that's, uh, that's circumcision that goes really far. And then verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, in this, in this one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. In verse 13 through verse 15, he, God describes Christian liberty. He defines it. In that, in that passage, he says, For you were called to freedom. Only do not turn your freedom into opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Further explanation. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In contrast, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. And here's a clear definition of Christian liberty. And that's what I'm going to, to walk you through when we, we, we get there. I'll give you the first two. We won't even get through these tonight. But there are five defining characteristics to freedom in, in God's Son. I mean, what is Christian freedom? Well, God defines it by providing five characteristics here in verses 13 through, through 15. Do you remember, I remember biology textbooks. I mean, there are tablets and those kinds of things today. And in those, in the biology books, when I was in school, they had this really cool transparency thing. So 
you opened it up and there was a skeleton and then there were all of these, these see-through transparencies that were in the book that went over top of it. And you laid this one down and it was the, it was the, you know, the muscular system and then the circulatory system and, and all of that. And by the time you got done, you, 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 built the, you know, built the person. Each page lays another system of the human body, the bones, the circulatory system, the muscles. Well, God does the same thing here in this, in this passage. He, he, he begins with a, foundation, a foundational position of freedom which is this call. God has called you to freedom. And this freedom is, is in His Son, and he, he gives five characteristics here, one after another, like those transparencies. And the first defining characteristic is the significant meaning of Christian freedom. Look at verse 13. He says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And he makes clear in verse 13 that, that freedom is at the very center of the gospel and, and sanctification. He says you were called to this position and the, and the purpose of freedom. And, and the you there is in the emphatic position. You were, were, were called to this position. And the purpose of, of freedom, to freedom, with the dative is, is taken to be the idea of purpose. So it means it was for the purpose of freedom that you were, that, that you were called. And again, notice this is all past tense, just like this morning. You, you were called. It has significant theological meaning. He's speaking to you. you. You converted believers in Galatia. And he's saying you were, past tense, called into this position of freedom. You're no longer condemned by the law. You're no longer accountable to the Mosaic law. You are now free in, in God's Son. This is not a command. This is a fact. Freedom is not like a condiment. Christian liberty is not like a condiment in, in the Christian life or a side benefit. All believers are called to, to this position. In fact, he says throughout the, the book, if you're not free, then you're not in Christ. You're called into, into this position. There's a positional aspect. You're called to Christian freedom, and freedom is in God's Son. And this verse makes it plain. Freedom is not, is not a side benefit. It's positional. And that position has come by faith, made available through, through the promise. It comes by God, through grace, and you're in Him. And beyond that, that there's a purpose to this. You were called unto freedom. And for freedom. Watch how verse 1 of chapter 5 and verse 13 kind of play off of each other, but, 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 but give us some additional information. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and, and, and do not be subject again to the yoke of, of slavery. And then verse 13. For you were called to the purpose of freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for, for the flesh. It was for the freedom that Christ set you free. There's, a, there's an article in, in verse 1. And it was purposeful, which is what verse 13 said. There's a specific reason that God called you to this, to this position. Meaning, He's the one who took you out of the kingdom of darkness. And He's put you in this position. He's the one who, by His grace, has done this. 
And so then the question should obviously come in, what, what is the freedom to which I've been called? I mean, what, what is this position? And so Paul starts that, that definition by, by explaining what, what it's not. It has a purpose, but, but it also has a danger, which is the second defining characteristic. Freedom's distortion is the flesh's opportunity. He says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. One of the ways that we explain something to people is we tell them what it's not before we tell them what it is. That's exactly what Paul's saying. He's explaining to you what Christian liberty is not. Christian liberty is is not an opportunity for, for the flesh. Here's the negative definition. It's not an opportunity to give the flesh rain. So after restating this call to, to freedom, which, which God in Christ, Christ has acquired for, for the believer, I mean, Paul begins to define what, what freedom is by saying what it's not. He says it's not, it does not mean that you can be a libertine. I mean, Christian freedom can be distorted is one of the reasons this topic is so helpful. You can thereby give an opportunity for the flesh to re-enslave a believer and fulfill the flesh's desires rather than, than God's, which is what we've been learning how to combat on Sunday mornings in Romans 6 and Colossians 3. If the purpose of liberty or freedom is for the service of others through love, then it surely is not going to be self-serving. Liberty that frees a person to indulge their, their flesh, and yet that's what many people think. They think Christian liberty means that, that they can live however they want, regardless of how unhelpful it is. And Paul says, yeah, you've been called by God. You've been put, placed by God in this position. You're no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. Only don't use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't misuse it. The word opportunity is a word for um, a launching pad, a military campaign. And Paul is saying here that whatever Christian freedom is, it's not a launching pad for the, for the flesh. And, and when you think about it, that seems very contrary to what we normally think. Your heart is wicked, so set it free. Does that make sense? Free it from the Mosaic law. Doesn't make, I mean, it seems counterintuitive. And it was counterintuitive to, to the Jews as well, unconverted people. And just like it sounds counterintuitive to some Christians today. MacArthur, describing Jewish thought about the law, said, In light of man's natural inclination to sin, the only way to prevent him from totally unleashing his worst passion was to establish a system of laws that set boundaries on behavior that carried penalties severe enough to promote conformity out of fear. That was Jewish thought. That's what Paul says is not the gospel. What he's been arguing in the whole book. That is the wrong way to live your Christian life. And yet that's the same concept prevalent in some Christians who, who fear that grace won't be powerful enough to restrain sin. So they think they have to add some externals to it. Taste not, touch not, handle not. And yet what Paul's been arguing is that a believer, being a believer involves possessing Christ's very nature and the Spirit's indwelling. Therefore, the motivation to obey is internal rather than external. 
when the power to obey is the spirit rather than the flesh operating by the law's precepts. The word for flesh here is the willing instrument of sin. It's our base nature, sinful, sensual powers. And while every believer is called to liberty and freedom, Paul, defining it, says that liberty does not involve a base of operations for these sinful desires. It, it's, it's echoed in, in, in Peter as well. In verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. And Paul says God didn't call you to freedom in Christ to remove the legal requirements of the Mosaic law in order to free the natural desires of man. Or to use the illusion that Paul creates here with his word, don't, don't use a beachhead for the, for the flesh. I mean, that should be very easy to, to grasp, being, what, 20 minutes from the D-Day Memorial? The Allied forces in Normandy were, were given the task of taking a beachhead having in, so they could have entry into German-occupied territory. I looked this up. Normandy invasion consisted of 5,333 Allied ships and landing crafts. 5,333. And they put nearly 175,000 men on the beach. They threw thousands of men at a, at a time attempting to gain a beach hold. Many died, but wave after wave after wave came, one behind the other, and they finally succeeded. And the flesh is the same way. It never improves, and so it's always there to tempt and to rise. And when you fight off the first wave of it, the, here comes another wave every day. And Paul says one of the things that you can, can do to, to encourage the enemy to get a foothold so it can operate in your life in other ways is to distort your Christian freedom. You can do that by saying, I'm not under the eternal law of God, so I can do what I desire, which is a gross perversion of, perversion of God's, God's intent. And it's easy to do. That's why this passage is in the Bible. It's easy to say freedom is a license and to interpret things as my rights or the privilege to do what the heart desires rather than spiritual ability and desire to do what, what one ought. I mean, how many times have you heard from others? Better, how many times have we said it ourselves, passed off questionable practices as freedom, only to find that it led us astray? I'm free in Christ. Who are you to judge me? And Paul says, while we are called to freedom, we must be careful not to have a warped definition of it. And whatever Christian freedom is, it's not a chance for the flesh to do what it wants. Amen. Now, if you want to see what a church looks like that does that, all you have to do is go back to the 1980s and 1990s and look at the church growth strategies. This is adapted from an article called The, the Church on the Corner. But it said one of the primary strategies during that time was to make church a low-commitment cost-free kind of adventure where you get more than you give. And the feeling was that people were tired of traditional church, they're busy with their lives, and they want freedom. Freedom to come and go. Freedom to worship as they please. Freedom to demand certain things. Nice buildings, convenient parking, great children's programs, exciting worship with upbeat music, 
interesting sermons that deal with felt needs of life and a dynamic youth program. And providing that, churches thought, was the way to get people into the kingdom. So the megachurch and the seeker model was, was formed. And it came in many varieties, but the principle was the same. Programs move people toward growth, meet people where they're at, and then try to get them to make a commitment to, to the Lord. Start low and light, move at their pace, rather than place the demands of the gospel up front. And they would even say this strategy is necessary because of the changes of society and, and the culture. We live in a postmodern world, so the church must embrace that. Change or die was the, was the theme. And the strategy was ask them what they want and give it to them while, and while they come, tell them about Jesus. People were looking for liberty, freedom and liberty of individual expression. Today, they're looking for what the church can offer them. And yet all of that happened in the 80s and the 90s and still going on in the 2000s. But there was no change for the better. In fact, it got worse, didn't it? In fact, people were more likely to leave the church then, less likely to get deeply involved and primarily see church commitment as, as well, why? What's the point? In fact, one of the founders of that, that movement, he's been discredited now with a bunch of other problems too, Bill Hybels, eventually confessed himself that the majority of their efforts failed to produce what they had intended to begin with. Their primary complaint that they heard from people was, I'm not being fed. In fact, not only did, did their, their own study, Willow Creek did a study, not only did their own study show that, that, but many other churches showed that people didn't want less, they wanted more. People were longing for commitment, emphasis on biblical preaching, on doctrine, on stability. And they found the best way to retain people is to expect more out of them, not give them more. I mean, I summarize that principle in this way. Look, if I'm going to bother to get out of bed on Sunday morning and take a bath and comb my hair and put on nice clothes and come someplace, give me something for it. Don't give me some drivel and send me home with, with a big nothing burger. I mean, I can sit at home and do that. I can stay in bed and do that. It's not freedom from God in this church that people were looking for. It's the freedom of God and unto His church that people were looking for. And the place that you look for answers when facing any problem is not even to those new studies that showed that they were, they were wrong, not to the culture or statistics, but the Scriptures. And that's what Galatians 5, 13 through 6, 10 will teach us about. It declares that a believer is called by God and bound by love in service to one another, not unto license as a consumer of Christian goods and services. Our liberty in Christ demands a committed church membership in contrast to freedom from commitment and being served by a local church ministry. The true purpose of Christian freedom is the essence of a believer's commitment to a, a local body of, of believers, and that's what we'll see this summer, as we work through this passage and do it together. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your word, how clear it is. I thank you for how powerful your gospel is. Lord, I am not smart enough to know all of the answers, to wrangle a person's heart to the ground or convince them, but I don't have to be. I just have to be simple enough to believe your word and share that with others and boldly stand there and then stand back and watch the creator of the universe do a work like he did in Genesis 1 when he spoke and light came into existence. You speak through the gospel and you bring new people into the kingdom. Thank you for that power. Bless us now as we fellowship and uh, bless our pizza. In Jesus' name, amen.